0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi there. I want to talk to you about dumb. You, oh, you're okay. This one, real fucking up. Monkey, this is not now. This is bowling. There are rules. Hey, Walter, come on. Oh, you're from the neighborhood. You're right. your neighbor. Well, that's not entirely true to see you but where are the paper that's what i it want to see now it's just torture and murder no plot no characters very very realistic i think it's what's next am i hallucinating here just what in the hell do you think you're doing learn about cuba
1: a toast to toast my friends to our health and cheer and happiness Otto, let the ritual begin and stop scrolling start listening you can follow any topic as specific as you like from sports science to bitcoin to the kardashians and they have podcasts as well explore trending podcasts from over 50 different countries our podcast the cold film companion is there there now to download and use newsly for free www.newsly.me or from the link in the description and use the promo code CULTF1LM cult film drop the i drop it in an a one and get a month free premium service from newsly but now i would like to introduce Um, A very special guest joining me here on the Cult Film Companion Podcast. His name is Mr. Austin Trunick. He is a film historian, and he is the author of the Canon Film Guide, which is an in-depth series of books about the legendary B-movie studio under the leadership of cult moguls Golan and Globus. The first volume covering 1980 to 1984 is now available, and the link to that to purchase this book is going to be in the episode description so please check it out and the second volume spanning 1985 to 1987 will be published soon is that correct Mr Trunick That is
0: correct that should be out this spring Awesome so you can
1: you um just uh quickly introduce yourself to um to my audience I I you know as a cult film Uh, podcast, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the Canon Film Guide, but uh, could you just give me a little history about yourself, and um, I'm guessing your love for this this film company.
0: Yeah, so, yeah, my name's Austin, and I am a film fan, a film historian. Um, That's what I studied in school for years and years. I've been a uh, editor for a magazine called Under the Radar Magazine. I've edited their film section, and a while back i was really looking for a project i could do myself and this was like six seven years ago at this point but could pour my time into and i was trying to think of like what what made me fall in love with films and it really all kept going back to being a kid and going to the video store the video rental store on friday nights with my dad renting a stack of movies and that would decide what we would do with our weekend i didn't grow up anywhere near a movie theater so VHS was our was our really our way to our access to film back then, and back in those days in the late '80s, early '90s, Canon was they were king of that space. They they really rolled the video store shelves because their volume. They just made so many movies, <laughs> right? And you could not miss them. Those those <laughs> logos were branded very very clearly on the on the sleeves for the artwork. Uh, They they always had artwork that was large and eye-catching, and Canon was very good at marketing and selling their movies, at least from the visual, from that very first seeing that on the shelf, seeing the poster, Canon did that incredibly well, and that's how they financed the movies, that's how they got them into viewers' hands. But coming back to me as a kid, I would see Chuck Norris movies with my dad, probably too young. get a little bit older, some few Charles Bronson. And then when I was old enough to rent the movies on my own, you know, you're 10, 11 years old and you can rent R-rated movies because that was how it was back back in those days at the, the video rental stores. Absolutely, yep. yeah. Yeah, I would get stuff like Invasion USA and Revenge of the Ninja, Ninja 3. And, I mean, I was I was especially a big ninja head, but what, what kid wasn't back then? Exa- but,
1: yeah, uh, right. That,
0: that was... That was canon. That was their area. They made they made oh, eight eight different ninja movies <laughs> during their very short short time before they imploded as a company. But yeah, so that, that's where that's where this book came from. Uh, when I when my daughter was born, she's now going to be turning seven. I would get, wanted something that I could work on that wasn't just freelance work. That would be something of my own project, and I started compiling these essays and just my writing about the movies that I fell in love with as a kid and then got more interested in it. I started chasing down the people who wrote them, directed them, starred in them, and getting the stories because when it comes to canon, anybody who's a fan of these movies knows that often the the behind-the-scenes stories are as crazy as what you're seeing on screen.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's almost kind of like the... uh, The kind of stories you kind of hear sometimes with a a Roger Corman movie, you hear there's some very kind of sometimes dubious or just some just like very like kind of makes you do a double take or scratch your your head and kind of lift up an eyebrow and go, huh, really? This is this is why we have, you know, Um, for our listeners, before we dive into our movie of the week, um, just quickly off the top of your head, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Top five canon movies.
0: Top five. Well, this could change every day. Sure. Because I've been living and breathing canon, watching these movies over and over again for the last seven years. It's, <laughs> any day it's going to change, but my my number one is easy. Is, I'm always going to say Revenge of the Ninja. That okay. Is one that right away, right away I fell in love with probably as a kid and there's a nostalgia but it's also a fantastic action movie um invasion usa is my favorite of the chuck the chuck film mm. i love the apple which is the world's only post apocalyptic sci-fi disco musical
1: uh, we've just dis- yeah my co-host andrew that's one of the ones that we, we we've talked about doing on the show um so yeah that's that's a that's a a deep cut kind of because it's not something that you would immediately associate with canon
0: no no and it's oh but it's so much fun um gosh now see this is where it's tough because five is hard five is really hard to narrow it down I love there's a movie called tough guys don't dance which was directed by Norman Mailer but which is this totally far out crazy wonderfully misguided uh <laughs> film noir shot in province town the late eighties. Um it has a very famous YouTube like thirteen stack YouTube clip of Ryan O'Neal standing on the on the on a beach in the Atlantic Ocean screaming, Oh man, oh God, oh man, oh god, oh man, oh god, oh God, oh god, it goes over and over and over again. Uh that, that movie has a very special place in my heart. And oh boy, you're, you're making me narrow it down here. Sorry. Yeah. Okay, just because this is right now, just what I'm feeling today, I'm going to have to say, uh, 10 to midnight, because we're talking to Charles
1: Bronson. You know, 10 to midnight, I was going to ask you if that was a canon movie, because I just actually happened to come across a review of it, and it's a movie that I've heard about that I've never seen. And after watching this, this, uh, very funny review of the movie it's one of those things i need to kind of track this down now i i i, I need to see this um canon is i uh, you know we have a very similar past like um a trip to the video store was kind of a reward for a good day uh good week at school um you know and um I'd, I kind of I'm trying to think do you remember the first I mean this was probably a tough one to remember because you probably weren't aware of it do you know what the first canon movie that you saw was
0: that I couldn't tell you that, that would have been that, that would have been very young at that right at that age uh, I mean some of the things I I distinctly remember it, and it's again it's a movie I don't remember seeing until I was older but Revenge of the is one that I remember the martial arts section was the bottom shelves of the action section of my video store. Growing Same
1: up. So here. There. Yep. Yep.
0: Uh, well, when you're, you know, a young kid, that's right at your eye level. And that's where I would see Revenge of the Ninja and, uh, the Enter the Ninja. <laughs> I, so I remember those distinctly, those very eye-catching cannon boxes, just simply because I was little and wandering through the action section my dad's. Looking at a shelf, you know, probably five shelves up from where I am at his
1: eye level. Right. I I think I can narrow it down, thinking age wise and what I was exposed to. I'm thinking that my first canon movie was either Superman Four: The Quest for Peace, or the Masters of the Universe movie. One of those. Masters
0: Masters of the Universe is the first one I remember choosing myself as a kid. (laughs) Being like you know, pulling
1: it off the shelf and being like, "Dad, we we get this." It's
0: He-Man, right? <laughs> yeah, and not the not the He-Man we knew and loved from
1: the cartoon. No, it's a He-Man. this is yeah, this is some this is Dolph Laundry, baby. <laughs> this is uh, Frank Lagella as uh, Skeletor. Um, so we've talked a lot about canon, but uh, the reason that I I'm I've asked you to join me on the show is that one of the movies that um. I wanted to cover here for a while is Death Wish three, and it's unusual. It's an unusual movie because actually this is the the second time on the show where I haven't done the first two entries in a series, but I've covered the third uh, for Halloween last year. We, um, one of the movies that we covered for our horror spooktacular was Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, which has a, a cult following, and Death Wish 3 has a cult following, and, uh, before we get into Death Wish 3, I'm just gonna rattle off some of the technical aspects here, and please correct me if I have any of these facts wrong, because, um, I'm sure you would, you would know better than I, um, um, Death Wish 3 was directed by Michael Winner, who previously directed the first two installments of the Death Wish series, Uh, the original coming out in 1974, Death Wish 2 coming out in 82. The screenplay for Death Wish 3 was done by Don Jacoby as Michael Edmonds, is that correct? Uh, and it's based, of course, on characters by Brian Garfield, who wrote the original uh, Death Wish novel. And we can, if you're familiar at all with the novel, we can get it a little t- into it. But um, the, uh, the, the, the movies have very, they've strayed off the course of the path that Brian Garfield had originally envisioned. And, of course, this being a canon production in the 80s, it was produced by Manhattan Golem. Golan, Yoram Globus, and Michael Winner. The cinematography was done by John Stanier. It was edited by Michael Winner under the uh, pseudonym uh, or alias Arnold Crust. The music was done by Mike Moran, but is credited to Jimmy Page, who had done the music for the second one, but did not compose anything original for the third. And it's thought that it was, a lot of it was reused. Or leftover music from the second. Um, the budget was somewhere between 9 to $10 million, uh, 1.5 of which went to securing its star, Charles Bronson. And it grossed at the box office around $16.1 million and uh, was released November 1st, 1985. Did I get that uh, correct? That's all correct. All right. So, a brief, um, so Death, the original Death Wish, of course, um, uh, people that listen to our show generally have watched the movies previously, so we don't have to go too much into the plot, recap, or details, or synopsis, but the, the first one deals with, um, Paul Kersey, an architect in New York City whose, uh, family is attacked, and and he becomes a vigilante and then death wish 2 he's in san francisco i believe and that was that was a can death wish 2 was canon death wish
0: 2 was canon it was actually in la uh san francisco proved too expensive for canon to shoot there so they shot right down the street from their offices
1: oh okay oh that sounds about right um and Death Wish 2 is kind of where, I mean, the first Death Wish is a pretty gritty, grounded, uh, there's some pretty intense scenes, uh, you know, uh, Death Wish has become kind of notorious for its rape scenes, almost, uh, there There seems to be a rape scene, I think, it, I know in 1, 2, and 3, I don't think there's 1 in 4, um, mm-hmm. And, of course, there. I think I, I've only seen up to four. I believe there is a fifth entry. And, of course, there was a remake with Bruce Willis a couple of years ago that um, seemed a bit unnecessary. It's kind of like Death Wish is one of those things that you just you could you could just leave it alone. You know, you're not going to top Charles Bronson in the original Death Wish. And um, so then we come to uh, Death Death Wish. He he started as a vigilante because his family was um was attacked and brutalized and um and everything. But by the end of Death Wish Two, he has no more family. And Death Wish Three uh, is kind of set into motion that he's visiting an old war buddy of his and um, discovers that the. That this this gang has kind of taken over this little nook in New York City um and uh his friends is his friend killed or just hospitalized
0: his friend is killed his friend is ki- killed. okay all right before he even gets there he walks in right as his uh right as the cops are getting
1: there right and then he's immediately arrested they think that he does it although um one of the cops kind of knows who he is. He's kind of put together the pieces. Um, but death wish three. Um, I, it was kind of actually was probably my introduction to the series. I think that I, I saw a version of this on cable at some point. Uh, and it's interesting going back having been exposed to the franchise at this later entry and going back to see it's um it's kind of gritty roots in the first movie oh. um it almost reminds me of of the way that I was exp- and I I we'll, we'll get to this com- I, I don't know if this is an apt comparison but um the way that uh, the Paul Kersey character ha- evolves through these movies, uh, you know, he's um, he, he's very much a, a pacifist um, a turned vigilante, and this third movie—I'm sorry—he's
0: oh, a, he's a full-blown superhero by the third
1: one. I was gonna say he's um, in this movie; he's setting up traps. Like uh, Kevin McAllister out of Home Alone, to for some of the uh, he's taking out people's teeth with like boards that will swing down and gluing, you know, just he's setting up weird traps and then he's getting machine guns and rocket launchers. And this movie is so over the top that I remember watching this and then going back to watch the original two Death. Death wishes, and it almost seems like a completely different character.
0: The, the it's got a very strange jump when you when the series gets to the point of the third film. Yeah, the first one was a very gritty shot in nineteen seventies New York on location, and so you you really do get this feel of this old scuzzy New York City. That it was was. Kind of realistic at the time. There were there where the crime was really bad in some of those sections, and New York was famous for that. So it's it's interesting you get that film. And then years later, Canon takes over the series in a very kind of funny, funny way how the series comes to them. But the second one is almost a carbon copy of the first one. It was almost like a I think of the Evil Dead movies where Evil Dead one and two are <laughs> right. technically Sequels, but t- it, you know, it's so much of the second one is just the first movie over again with a different, different spin. The second movie, Death Wish Two, sort of does that. It's it's continuing it because his his wife is dead, but his daughter, his poor daughter, gets attacked again, and it sends. What are the chances? Of right. The, I mean, the same thing happening, and so Bronson has to go out and do to clean up the gang that that ruined his family but by the third one they
1: couldn't do that again. <laughs> uh, like well yeah, he has no more family to avenge. His um right. his love interest right. leaves him um in Death Wish 2, which is smart because it seems that time that uh you become the love interest of Paul Kersey in these movies, you're going to end up dead most likely. Um as the love interest in Death Wish 3 ends up uh who unexpectedly has this? I mean, we can w- w- when we discuss some of the characters. I, I just it's kind of preposterous because it, you got to keep in mind for those of people that are kind of like reaching back into their memories for Death Wish Three. Charles Bronson was, I think, night, uh, not ninety. An anti- he was sixty four at the time when this movie was made. Does that sound about right? Sixty
0: four when it came out. He was sixty three when it was when it was filming.
1: <laughs> So we got a sixty-three-year-old man who's who's caught the eye of a of a public defender, probably thirty years his uh, junior, and uh, yeah, he's somehow um, as the sixty-something-year-old man going into vendetta mode to uh, to avenge his 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 uh, his friend here, uh, but it's. It's interesting. Could you um, what was you said the story behind Candy obtaining the rights to Death Wish? Could we get a, like a quick condensed Cliff Notes version that of uh, of what it was like yeah. how, how Canon came to own the rights to Death Wish?
0: So yeah, This was a very. I mean, there are Canon story. This is a very Canon story. They so the rights to Death Wish were the film rights were held by Dean De Laurentiis, who I know you you guys are have to be fans of on this podcast absolutely yes and so eight years had gone by and not at this point but eight years between the the sequel death wish 2 and death wish but death wish wasn't really a movie that was begging for a sequel it had been the original one had been a hit but it kind of other i mean it ends with bronson you know his his famous smile at the camera the wink and he but it's it really it should be a close you you where 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 do you think paul Kersey's story is going to go after that after avenging his his family's the, this attack on his family but no that's that's not the way Menachem Golan, who was the 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 the, the... Had basically the the creative head of canon during their heyday in the 80s the way he thought so what happened is canon was this kind of failing grindhouse company They 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 did some independent, finance some independent films in the 60s and 70s, but really one of their biggest things was importing pornographic films from Sweden and putting subtitles in them and sending or redubbing them and putting them in, you know, grand house theaters. But they're really crumbling. But here come Golden Globus, these two very, very, very successful producers from Israel. And really, it's probably the at that, well, easily at that time, the most successful movie producers to ever work in the Israeli film industry. They had lots of big, large-grossing films. They had several movies that were uh, nominated for the Best Foreign Language Oscar. um, Really well-regarded. But they bought Canon thinking that this was going to be their stepping stone into the U.S. market. They wanted to make movies in Hollywood, in America.
1: And so they bought
0: this failing company that had sort of this sort of the, the the skeleton already in place for, rather than starting their own company. And the first thing they did after they bought it was take out these big advertisements in all the trade papers, which was something they were very famous for doing. They always advertised in the papers, on billboards, advertise, advertise, advertise. They're very good at marketing themselves a the company. But one of the things they announced is going on globus, take over Canon. Here are their first 10 movies, I can't remember the exact number, but then that, that they're working on that are coming out. And one of those movies was a new Death Wish movie. But uh, the the problem here is Canon, Canon didn't have the rights to Death Wish. Oh. They couldn't make a Death Wish sequel. They announced that they were doing it, but they never bothered to look into that. So... Did they the kind of... Find-
1: did they assume okay. that they could just, like make it like yeah i don't know like how things go in, in israel did they just think well there isn't a death wish 2 yet so we could do death wish 2 right like did they were they naive or ignorant or was this just like
0: I think they, this, these are guys who made you know in some some years you know they were they were made they put out 30 movies a year and that's just you have to move super, super fast. Right. I just think it was something that was probably, like, an idea that went up on a whiteboard or a notepad somewhere, (laughs) and they never, it just, you know, hours later, all of those ideas went in the newspaper without any sort of (laughs) vetting vetting, uh, facts or rights or anything like that. But stuff like that happened all the time. Like, they announced so many movies that never got made, or they announced deals with actors who they didn't have deals with and it wasn't it wasn't, that was very common but one of the things that among the other announcements they had were they had announced Life Force which was a Toby Hoover movie 1985 they started advertising it in 1979 under its original title Space Vampires but in those 1979 ads that ran with this Death Wish sequel it was Klos Kinski starring which would have been a different very different very crazy movie uh again
1: it's already a crazy movie on uh, there. <laughs> yeah well, life force life force is one that we're uh, we're gonna we're gonna be covering on the show um i'm a big toby hooper fan and that that's one of his little underrated gems but um i had no idea so they were, they were advertising life force back in the, the late 70s and wow
0: yeah. is that, and 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 yeah, I'm getting beyond probably the cliff notes version here, but Dino De knew that he's like, We're, we aren't really interested in making death wish too. like anyone who was involved with the first one didn't hear about a sequel until they saw it in the papers and they knew Bronson didn't want to do it. Uh, but Dino De has just kind of laughed it off. And he had his lawyers call up, call up going Globus and force them to buy the rights to the sequel thinking that, it's never gonna get me, they're never gonna get they're either gonna to have to get somebody else to do it or they're not gonna get Bronson. So he basically strong armed them into paying I think it was half a million dollars, it was a six figure sum for for the rights to make a Death Wish sequel, and then they were in kind of a tough position because they didn't Bronson didn't want to do this, they had to make him an offer he couldn't refuse, and that's <laughs> one and a half million dollars, which was pretty good pretty good fee for Charles Bronson at that time. That was that was what it cost him to get him to say yes to doing one.
1: See, it's interesting. Like, I'm I'm so glad that you can shed some light on this because to me, like, I never would have thought that because I I think a lot of times issues with rights and 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 actors and directors those are kind of like clues to me that something weird is going on behind the scenes but once once i acquired my my little death wish collection here on blu-ray i'm like okay michael winner he directed the first three charles bronson's been in all of them like i i thought it would have been like pretty pretty similar but the the tones for these movies couldn't be more um more different but given that that we had the, the same people behind the um the scenes um but uh, I mean, we're here to focus on on Death Wish three, and I've heard some I I heard some very interesting stories about where the 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 uh, idea for this came. Um, but I'm gonna shoot you a two part question. Um, mm-hmm. Number one, well, actually, let's uh, I'm gonna split this up. Uh, well, this will be too distracting if we if I shoot you these two parts, but. Um, is there any truth to the um, at the Canon offices? There were two stacks of scripts that they would always have. They'd have the Chuck Norris stack and the Charles Bronson stack, or is that just a, a, a like Hollywood rumor that I've heard?
0: I mean, I can't confirm that it was there, but it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> at at all i mean because they were their two biggest stars especially for a little while but i'm sure they also had a dudikoff stack i'm sure they had a lucinda Dickey stack if 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 it was if it was that i a lot of these projects uh came at least at least for bronson through his he had a he had a manager slash agent who had sort of projects that they wanted to do and um yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I can't confirm the existence of the two Okay. Stack, sadly. But it, it, knowing what I do about canon, it would not be a surprise in the
1: least. So it's very, also very interesting that you watch something like the original Death Wish, and you could really see that Bronson is is invested in this character. He's invested in in. Acting at this point in his career, no, I shouldn't say in, in this point in his career because I'm gonna. But when you watch something like Death Wish Two and Death Wish Three, you kind of see that 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 spark had already gone out. Like I I I kind of like like you were saying, there was no need for a sequel to Death Wish. There really like it wasn't like you said wasn't begging for a sequel. People weren't saying, you know, oh my gosh, is uh you know what what is paul kersey you know up to these days um but then you see something like uh 10 to midnight uh, around the same time where he seems more he seems much more invested in that kind of movie it seems to me that after the first one the death wish movies kind of became paycheck movies for bronson and i don't know if that's unfair of me to say so but i could i it just kind of seems he seems kind of blase
0: so a little bit of, a little bit of background there this is Bronson was in his 60s right exactly when, when, when he came to Canon so he was he was getting up there in age. I mean still in great shape he was doing a lot of a lot of stunts on his on his own but Canon and Bronson were they, they found a very mutual mutually beneficial relationship so bronson was able to make movies on a regular basis with canon they paid him his very you know his 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 regular fee he made a lot of money doing it and it supported his lifestyle he had uh he was he had married jill ireland sometime before you know and they had kids together they had her own kids too so house full of House full of children. He had a ranch out in Vermont, a horse ranch, and he had a home in LA. And it takes it takes money to do that. And but it, and this is something that I don't want to I don't want to bum you out. But I, <laughs> it's always the sad story behind these canon These cannon, yeah. Shortly right, shortly after he started making them, his Jill Ireland, his wife, who co-starred with him in Death Wish Two and many many movies and throughout the seventies.
1: I thought she was in Death Wish Four she in two
0: she's in two uh, Jill Island oh death wish two. okay yeah she's she's a love uh, well she's 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 in that not a not his not wife or daughter but she she's yeah sorry but Jill Island his, his his real life wife and an actress had uh, been diagnosed with cancer so he was not very interested in being away from his family his wife a sick wife and and young he had a a young daughter uh in addition to his older kids and so canon he was able basically to make one movie get get a lot of money for it and then go go back to back home you know it paid for it paid the bills and for canon these were movies that were you know they did pretty well most most of them did pretty well because Canon made their money off of international sales, primarily in video sales, and Canon did especially uh, Bronson did especially well on those markets. So during this time, you'll see that like Canon came to uh, Bronson came to Canon and he made the evil that men do and did some projects in other places, but for the most part, his Canon period is almost exclusively doing Canon movies. So it's it's. In regards to his, I mean, he, yeah, sometimes he does seem, yeah, he does seem a little checked out. But it's also, I mean, his 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 wife is at home mm-hmm. dying; he doesn't want to be away from her. I mean, she got to travel with him at this point. Like she wasn't, she wasn't gravely ill for Death Wish Three, so there's you can't blame it for that. <laughs> you can't blame it for his performance here. So, but for his ones.
1: um. Okay, because I know that he and his wife they did a slew of movies together, um, and I I had to, I thought for some reason Death Wish four she had showed up in, but it was Death Wish two, and right. now we. She's, co- in, she's also in assassination. She co-stars in that's a canon
0: movie. Oh. Um, yeah. And... She stars as the president's wife, and he—he's her bodyguard, and they're like—they have this very fun, like, really catty. They dislike each other relationship, which is fun because they're madly in love with each other in real life. But that's actually a fun one. If anybody hasn't seen that, it's not a—it's not a great movie, but. It's you can really tell that Bronson's having a good time making
1: it, <laughs> and sometimes you know, and, and and sometimes that's what what you know that's all it takes for something like that. Um, so, what? And I've heard numerous stories about, the, and this is this is the second part of my question was um, the genesis of this this movie. Uh, originally, after Death Wish two, they were considering were considering or talking to chuck norris taking over the role of paul kersey is that correct
0: yeah that had been that had definitely been i think uh uh a threat that canon might have put out to kind of (laughs) keep keep bronson coming back but knowing chuck norris i don't think there was any way he would have done these movies he's uh i mean his movies are extremely violent but they're also a very uh <laughs> um, very much he he's he's a soldier or a, a super agent in the case of invasion u s a or a cop. He's never somebody who's breaking the law, and I just can't really see Chuck Norris playing a character who's so such like a morally gray taking the law into
1: his own hands type type figure right and um but on the flip side. I would say that Death Wish Three, if you scrub the name Death Wish from it, it's and you kind of like change the age of the character. You kind of change the just one take, change Paul Kersey. This could very easily be a a Chuck Norris esque movie. Some of the I mean, all of a sudden Bronson's doing hand to hand combat, which I don't think we'd seen in the previous two Death Wish movies, and he's shooting rocket launchers and he's got machine guns, just like you know, like Chuck Norris in an invasion USA or something. It's it's almost like this and that's what I, 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 I come across in my research that like the genesis for this project was kind of to be maybe not a Death Wish movie, but kind of like a Chuck Norris esque movie. Is that is that you know track at all?
0: For this one, this one is probably maybe for a later sequel. This this one more Bronson would have been uh, on board um, at at this point, and Chuck would have been just coming into canon. He was not one of their their stars at the time they were they were filming this. The he yet to have that huge huge missing in action hit right um but yeah yeah but no you're 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 right about that as as far as him being a chuck norris as character we in the previous movies we never saw we never saw bronson you know knock people out or anything like this and then within the first like 10 minutes or so of this movie we see him to, you know, take down a guy much larger than him and shove his head through some jail cell bars. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I I don't think that's something your average uh, 63-year-old architect knows knows how to do. He's clearly been busy, but that's actually something that's... There's, again, you watch these movies over and over again, and you start to still pick up things, and I always forget every time I watch it that... Um, the uh, shirker, um, the cop, Ed Leonard's cop character, mentions that he's been following Kersey's career. And so the last movie was in L.A., but he also mentions that he killed, like, six people in Kansas City and then moved to Chicago. He, so just in the two years between these movies, like, Kersey's just been this, like, angel of death traveling around the Midwest.
1: And I I, I know that he... Um... What he calls him, Mister Vigilante, right? That's the kind of like the nickname that he gives him, and he kind of, um, yeah, the, like his motivations are very bizarre in this movie to me because he kind of like flips on a dime. Like he's he's holding, he's holding Paul Cursey for for basically assuming that he killed his best friend, even though I'm guessing that this cop knew the whole time that he wasn't the one that killed him. And then kind of, like, decides over the course of, like, 24 hours, he's like, let's, uh, let's, you know, we, we're we not making a dent in this, this, what, what is the gang's name in this movie? I, it's, it's not that, I can't remember. They've got a weird symbol, though.
0: Right, right.
1: There's little, little dash marks on there, on there. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, it's Manny Fraker's gang, gang, but I'm trying to remember. So, um, the, um. The gang leader is played by Gavin O'Hurley, who who sports a, a haircut that uh, I nobody with, you know, any sense of style or uh, lack. You know, the, the, this is the kind of the hairstyle you see this. You see the look on this guy and you, he's not somebody you want to mess with. And the other the other um, gang member worth noting is this was the first. I believe the first role for Alex Winter, who would go on to portray—oh, I always mix it up—is it Bill or Ted? He's he. Anyway, he's best known for the Bill and Ted movies. Um, Alex Winter is, and he directed a great movie called Freaked, and he's done documentaries. But um, he's the um, the other gang member, and then there's we get the giggler who i think was uh, was originally in the first death wish novel was actually one of the the original gang members but he he turns up here um and he's someone that giggles and can run really really fast yeah (laughs) (laughs) and uh it's just it's just it's it's just bizarre to me that um I it I, you can almost see the transformation of like Death Wish 2 to me is very much like the first half feels very much like the the it, it kind of has the tone of the first Death Wish but then by the time that he's sneaking into a psychiatric hospital to kill the final gang member at the end of Death Wish 2 you're just like this is a whole different kind of movie and and then we come to death wish 3 that becomes like by the end of it it feels like one of the later rambo movies
0: so, uh, yeah it, it's quite quite a leap in <laughs> just the number of the number of kills even It's just it jumps through the roof i i interesting oh, i was just going to
1: ask you about some of the the um about the the screenplay here by uh Don Jacoby, what you knew about the kind of like the basis for where this movie kind of um, started from.
0: Well, something that's I mean, Michael Winner's very notorious for is rewriting. (laughs) Rewriting the scripts he has, which is why uh, Don Jacoby is credited as Michael Edmonds here. He uh, Michael Winner just took a lot of stuff and his own ideas and ideas that had been in the, an earlier draft of death wish two and works them into, into this um, very famously with death wish two. I know we keep jumping back here, but the uh, original script by David Engelbach didn't have the very graphic, graphic rape scene that death wish two was infamous for. Mm. And he was so disgusted by that stuff that he went to—he—he he almost had his name changed, removed from <laughs> Death Wish Two, which is because Michael Winner rewrote it so much. But then he found out that they, they would mess up with his, his residuals, or uh, it would basically make it so make him harder for him to get paid. So he ended up keeping his name on there. But yes, it's the, one of the things that came from the uh, one of the earlier Death Wish Two scripts before it was turned back basically into a copy of the first Death Wish was uh, because the thought was of Paul Kersey, if you're going to make a sequel to Death Wish, you have to make him even bigger and crazier rather than just repeating what he did in the first movie. And so he become, he became this sort of heavily armed uh, (laughs) with machine gun, like the guns and the things like that, body armor and things like that. And some of those ideas get incorporated into three that, because they weren't used into. But, but what's, you mentioned some of the actors that play the bad guys here, and it's it's interesting. With the Death Wish movies, at least the first three, have always one gang member, it seems like a traditional one gang member, who goes on to become this much bigger actor. We, Alex Winter is... Oh, go ahead. I was
1: going to say, we had uh, Jeff Goldblum, yes, and, yes. and um, is it Laur- Lawrence Fishburne in the second one, right? Am I... My oh, good! My memory's not completely shot. I don't know. I kind of binge watched these movies over the weekend to, to pre- prep for this, and they kind of start. They kind of started to run together. Um.
0: <laughs> I can understand that. And and, <laughs> and Gavin O'Hurley, who uh, plays Fraker in this, was the son of Dan O'Hurley, who it, you mentioned Halloween Three, and I know that was a recent episode, but was the Main bad guy from Halloween three. So, I like to pretend in my mind that Fraker is the son of the guy who started the silver. Sh- is it silver shamrock taking the
1: mass? Right. Yeah. The silver Shamrock uh, e- Either that or um, he's um he's in RoboCop. No, am I remembering? Yes, okay. Yes, all right. So
0: right. he. <laughs> RoboCop as well. Yeah. Another another
1: great one. But yeah, what a family tree there. Yeah. Atlanta, both on camera and off camera. Um. So to me and I love Death Wish 3 because I love it because it's it's almost it's almost like the scary movie version of a you know like scary movies spoof the horror movies Death Wish 3 is almost it it almost feels like a spoof of of like Death Wish um you got like you said, there's a the scene of the jail cell. He throws someone's head through these bars. He's setting up these ridiculous traps around this apartment building. He buys this car. He places it outside the apartment building, goes inside and, like, eats dinner, excuses himself from dinner, goes outside when they're breaking into the car, and just shoots people. It's, it's almost like it, it becomes, like, uh, it's almost like a satire of action movies. Uh, yeah, he's got. You,
0: you look at even just. Uh, he's got this gun, the the Willie Survivor, the four seventy five Magnum that he mail orders, along with all these other amazing weapons. Right. And he he's ta- he he talks to it like he talks about it as if it's his friend, Wilde's here, my friend Willy. <laughs> that's right. And, and that's like such a. It makes me think of, there was a TV show called Sledgehammer that was on for a little while, and it was a comedy-like cop show from the late 80s, early 90s. I can't remember exactly when it ran, but the whole joke was the guy would talk to his gun, and that's, <laughs> that's what Death Wish 3 occasionally makes me think of. But Yeah, yeah he... this uh, this gun, it was actually, Michael Winner got it, and it was put into the movie because he wanted a gun that was bigger than Dirty Harry's. Yeah, I heard... It was measuring
1: match, like, who's got the bigger gun? Yeah, no, I remember reading that, um, and unfortunately, I've also read some, some, some not so nice stuff about Michael Winner behind the scenes, and, um, you know, that's, uh, just something that I bring up sometimes on the, uh, uh, but I, this, this, Death, Death Wish 3 also has a very uncomfortable um, uh, attempt attempted rape scene. Um, that Bronson breaks up, but still, um, it's it's kind of a it's. They're not easy to watch, and that's one of the reasons why. Um, my my co-host for the show, um, this is not uh, material that he likes to to watch, and um, yeah, Death Wish and Death Wish 2 both have very notorious scenes but the scene here was i believe um was is a black black woman that's being attacked and her top's ripped off and um again like it doesn't it, it's weird like the tone of this movie is kind of like it's very heightened over the top violence and sometimes, like, a scene like that kind of just, like, it kind of stinks the place up. It kind of ruins it, you know? It's kind of like, uh, like, it doesn't, uh, like, we don't
0: need that here. Uh, Marina. Yeah, Marina Sardis' character, actually, Deanna Troy from Star Trek, she, uh, her character actually dies after she's assaulted in this movie. And it's just, yeah. It, even though, like, it, it's it says a lot about Michael (laughs) Winner when you can watch death wish three and think, Oh, this really like, this really isn't as graphic as the last two movies. And it's, it's still pretty darn graphic. It's still pretty awful. And as far as that, yeah. And, um, I mean, yeah, Michael, Michael Winner had some twisted, thick part of himself that I think he was really, uh, well. to explore in, in his movies. Yeah. Um. Her, the
1: audiences. Yeah. Um. If if people want to look into that. Um. Uh, what is the actress's name again? She, she she's talked about it. Her. Um. What was yeah. her? The one that p- portrayed. Uh,
0: Marina Sirtis.
1: Okay. I, I I I know she's given interviews about. Um. Because I think at the time that she was dating Michael Winner, or was it yes. her? She was. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's something to look into. It's kind of like, to me, like the scenes like that in a movie like this, where the, where it's, it's the violence is so cartoonish that you can't kind of like, and I think that's kind of why this movie has such the cult appeal because I mean, the, the climax of this movie is Like you just kind of need to to see it to believe it because it's it's the it we don't have the intimate and I say intimacy of like death wish and even death wish two like it's the final showdown it's just him and one other person he's taking on a whole gang and he's got a couple of the other people in the apartment building helping him out but they've got machine guns and the gang leader is finally killed with a rocket launcher like he's like like I said it the the violence is very cartoonish it's over the top so when you have something like the serious um assault scenes um I I have issues with that and we previously um we talked about the movie Showgirls and how like campy and ridiculous Showgirls is except for the part that there's a very intense like Assault and rape scene at the end of that movie that, like, completely takes, like, takes it takes away, it takes me personally out of enjoying, like, the rest of this goofy showgirls movie. And that's kind of the way I feel about Deathwish 3 is like, I know that they, they, they kind of like, like, the whole series is based on these very personal assaults on, on people that he loves. Like we don't have that here. We have a character that we've never met before that we're introduced to, who sends him a, like a letter and says that like gangs are overruling, running his apartment and his his block. And then Paul Kersey shows up, and all of a sudden we've got. It's just if you. It's kind of like if what the Punisher is going to be like in his later years. That's kind of like what I see Death Wish 3 is it's like, kind of like, like yeah. he's going to be like, he's like, he's got the, like in death, he's got the body armor. He's got the trap set up. And, um, but, um, what was, um, what was some of the background to like where the, insp- do you know where like the inspiration came from? Because I've heard a couple different sources about, um, where the inspiration for this movie came from, um, in order to take the series back to um, to New York City, even um, because the first one took place in New York New York City, and you know he he went to the West Coast, but now he's back in, in New York City. Um, do you do you have any background to why they they decided there was time for him to uh, to come back to NYC?
0: Um, really? It's I, I, I don't have anything specific there because this setup is, as you mentioned, so. Kind of feels disconnected. It's a, he's visiting a, a friend that we never, was never mentioned in any earlier films, and he really has no sort of connection to anything. Um, and it wasn't necessarily because New York, because Cannon shot a lot of movies you know 83 to early 84 in new york city because they had offices there and um it was that made that very simple for them but this one they 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 only shot little parts of it in new york outside of some exteriors almost all of the movie was shot in in london all of the exteriors and the big climactic battle was the majority of it was shot on sets built on the grounds of an abandoned hospital near London which but yeah the the choice to to move it to New York other than i guess like it the series feels like it should be at home there
1: <laughs> right <laughs>
0: where where you... Paul Kersey was from who uh, spent his entire life before have you he, uh, dedicated his career to to killing people
1: Yeah, it's almost and like you said, it's kind of glossed over, but like something that like, like once once you like you bring it up again in conversation, you're like, wait, so not only was he in L.A., but he was in Chicago and Kansas City. Like, what the hell happened in these cities? And like, like, who does he keep running into? Does he just have like terrible luck? (laughs) <laughs> Is he cursed that like everyone that like he becomes like if you're a friend or love interest for Paul Cursey you're going to be targeted by um by a gang like it's just and um have you read the original Death Wish novel?
0: No, unfortunately, I I I know some of the major differences, but I
1: I, I have not read the novel. Okay, because um. I haven't either, but I, I was I listened to an interview with Brian Garfield, and I think it's very interesting that it's kind of seen this way in the original Death Wish, and it, it's completely different in the sequels. But Brian Garfield never uh, anticipated that Paul Kersey be a, a hero. Of any kind. He was supposed to be a very sick man. That was well he was pushed. He was you know he was brought to a point. In his life that he was pushed. To a a place he'd never been before. But. You know like I said. We have. the, The police chief in Death Wish 3. Here you know giving him the. The nickname Mr. Vigilante and actually coming to his aid. At the end in the final. The final showdown. Um, he's become sort of like an anti hero. He's kind of become like a, the Punisher. And people that are familiar with the Punisher comics, you know, the Punisher becomes the Punisher because his family is, is massacred. And Paul Kersey becomes Mr. Vigilante. Um, and Death Wish 2 and Death Wish 3 and 4 and 5 now because of, um, things that have you know that have happened to him in his personal life but uh yeah he never anticipated that he'd become like a glorified hero and he's very much we kind of see it i would say that th- this is the part in the series where he he's like you said earlier in the what we were talking he's basically a superhero at this point you know he, he's got the backing of the community he's got the backing of the police uh and death wish 2 we're we're still we're still shown the consequences of his actions because his the romantic lead in death wish 2 leaves him because she finds out what he's up to and here in death wish 3 he's he's like an unstoppable killing machine and but he's a 64-year-old man and supposed to be an architect and like it's just it's, yeah, well,
0: Deathwish. Yeah, Death I mean, the first two Deathwishes, you look and he's. I mean, it's him taking out this very specific gang, like gang members who, you know, wrong they like came after his family. Right. And in this one, he's he kills more than fifty people in broad daylight as the community cheers him on and, you know, the cops give him their consent, it's it, it, that's, it's definitely a spin on the characters. Bri- I know Brian Gar- Garfield was actually, I know he was unhappy with how the fir- like how the reaction was and how the first movie was changed from his book, and when he wrote the uh, sequel book, an actual like, follow-up to Death Wish in the novel form, I believe it's about Paul Kersey finding out about a copycat vigilante, someone who was inspired by what he had done in the first movie, and him trying to. At one point, he like he he, he confronts this guy and tells me, you "No, know, I'm not a hero." Tries to talk him down, which is interesting because <laughs> it's very different from the Paul Kersey that that the, the, the way the screen character went.
1: Yeah, I, I see. I think that's very interesting. Uh, the only other thing that I've seen is. um the movie Death Sentence, and I don't think it's a continuation of Death Wish, but it's kind of like it's very—it's a very similar kind of like revenge story. Uh, have you seen Death Sentence with Kevin Bacon? No, I haven't. Well, um,
0: I know, I'm aware, I'm aware of it, but no, I haven't seen
1: it. It's 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 worth checking out. Um, but I I know that it's just very interesting to me that we oftentimes here on our show, um, we actually just came came across this on our last episode where um either the author of the source material who's also the screenwriter or just the author of the source material that has eventually has their material adapted is just either very very unhappy with the changes that are made you know whether legitimately or not um and i i could see i can see it's I mean I'm very curious now to go back and 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 read the original Death Wish um to kind of to see what exactly that the author had in mind because what we have on display here in Death Wish three is quite clearly um not what the author wanted, and it's also not what um it, from my understanding Charles Bronson himself wasn't very happy with the final product was he
0: oh he, he... And I mean this is funny for to hear from the star of the the Death Wish movies but yeah he he felt this movie was too violent.
1: We're, and I, if if I'm not mistaken he he claims that uh, um several of the scenes of uh, some of the more gratuitously violent scenes were not shot with him. Is that correct? That
0: that is correct. Especially some of the things they had to cut this movie in some places to Get an R R rating versus an X, and some of those scenes, yeah, he wouldn't have been. They were cutaways. There, I mean, there was the you had the a more graphic version of the rape scene. Mm-hmm. You had the I, some of the ones at least I'm aware of. You had Fraker cutting the guy, running the guy through through with the knife that was much bloodier. You saw much more on screen and in earlier cuts, and there was a a, a male prisoner. In the cell with, with, um, with Kersey at the beginning, right when he's taken into jail, being sexually assaulted, and that was a, that was filmed in part of that scene, which you can hear a little bit of it when you're watching the scene, but you don't you don't see it anymore, and that those were all things that, yeah, Bronson wouldn't have wouldn't have known until he saw it.
1: Now the, the the scene of um, the the sodomy assault scene that you just mentioned, I, I believe that wasn't that reused in a different canon movie, was it? Oh well, there there were uh,
0: there were certainly assault scenes in in other movies. Right. I don't think it's a, exactly that footage. Okay. Uh, now, there's there's uh, pretty pretty fam- famously uh, Kinjite. Forbidden subjects. Uh, Bronson's last canon movie has uh, has a pretty notorious assault scene. That's along those lines.
1: Okay, I think maybe that's what I'm that's what I'm going from. Um, and so, along with Charles Bronson, we we briefly talked about Gavin O'Hurley. He um, anything to say about I I, I actually think that given the materials she had to work with, she actually delivered a, a, a good performance. Uh, Deborah Raffin as uh, Catherine Davis, the uh, public defender who bec- who become, um, knows about Kersey because he's being held. Um, anything to say about uh, Deborah Raffin? Uh, any background on her in history of canon uh, films? Again,
0: I, I think she does well, um, um, considering that... She's there as <laughs> the obligatory uh, female character to be assaulted and/or killed in a, in a, in a Charles uh, Death Wish movie. Right. Um, to really set him, set Bronson off, uh, make make him go full cursy. <laughs> I like or, that. <laughs> but he, so yeah, something like something that's funny is like her character is such a small part of this. Within 30 minutes of screen time of her asking him out on a date, she is dead. <laughs> it's like, it's such a bad idea to ask to, to, to get any sort of connection to Paul Kersey.
1: In uh, uh, any way. Yeah, it's, he, he needs to come with a warning label. Yeah, like, um, and somebody else to me that I, he just, Ed Louder, as, um, the police captain, I think it's Shriker, Shrieker, um, yeah. Is like again going back to this movie, seeming like a set. Sati- he's almost seems like the angry, the angry police chief that you see in so many cop movies. Like he's just like screaming for no reason, or then he's talking calmly and he's like not making sense and he's got one liners and like his, he's like all over the place. But like his performance is very, very. I, I love it because it just be, it's. It's so kind of like over the top, in ways.
0: Yeah, he's he's very much your yeah, uh, hard nosed, nosed New York, New York cop, and a, a a great actor. I mean, I I like him in Cujo. Is something I think of him.
1: Right. Uh, yeah. As, uh,
0: as what the first the first movie that that comes to mind, but yeah, he has some. Some great scenes, and really, it's not easy to play a character who is supposed to. I guess he doesn't. No one intimidates Paul Kersey, but he's the he's he has to play this in uh, character who is this authority figure over Charles Bronson. I can't imagine that was an easy job for anyone in the history of film. Anyone who ever worked with Bronson, no, actually a presence that could really uh, be in the same room with him and not automatically be like the subordinate character at least like at least on the same level and with with ed Lauder you get this sense that yeah they they understand each other that's <laughs> they both have sort of the same I- idea of, of, of
1: Like he's, he, he kind of want he wants to um, let the dog off the leash. And he knows that, uh, K- you know, speaking of Cujo, like Kersey, kind of given the right motivation, could be a, a, a rabid dog on the, uh, on the underbelly of, of, uh, of society.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And really that's, that's his role in this is to wind up, wind up Kersey and let him go. And it, I mean, that's it, that is where the where the movie takes it's like that's that's probably the silliest part of this because <laughs> this, this, what this cop does is basically like wind up with an entire like neighborhood at war. No. By the last, the crazy last twenty minutes, you got buildings burning down, things exploding. I don't know how many people die in the last scene, but you know Bronson guns down at least twenty five. So on his
1: own. according to IMDb the body count for Death Wish 3 is 84. Now that's uh, okay. that <laughs> Now Death Wish 1 I think the body ca- body count was single digits. I got to I got to I got to think single digits. Uh-huh. Um and then kind of like uh Death Wish 2 we we started to up the ante, but eighty four people. And again, this kind of goes back to like the way that, um, like, I can't help but think of, of these movies. The way that I was kind of introduced to, um, Rambo. Uh, I think I saw either Rambo First Blood Part Two or Rambo Three first, and then I did it backwards and ended up seeing like First Blood. Uh, last and to see it's kind to me that I'm making a a comparison here that might be a little far-fetched but if you watch uh, Rambo first blood we we don't have what we commonly think of a Rambo movie when we think of a Rambo movie we think of a one-man army over in another country freeing POWs or just like blowing the hell out of some other nation First Blood, we've got a a tormented Vietnam vet dealing with PTSD, being hunted by local police, and I don't think he... He he kills one person by accident, I think, in First Blood. And so the comparison that I'm making here is that, like, when I saw Death Wish 3, I thought, like, all the movies were going to be like this over-the-top, kind of heightened ultra-violence. Very... And again... It's very cartoonish at times. Death Wish Three is very, very cartoonish at times. Like I said, we've got a gang member being blown away with a rocket launcher. One of the one of the traps that Paul Kersey leaves, like, is a is a a board that flies up if you try to break into their window and they know it works because there's comically like two big front teeth stuck in this board with blood and they're like oh yeah it works you know (laughs) it's so and then going back and going back to like the original Death Wish being such a gritty grounded movie um, so yeah that's my my weird Rambo Death Wish comparisons it's just kind of like the way that I was introduced to the character was so much different From how uh, most people were, and um, so for you, what? Yeah,
0: before you move on, this is a great. There's a great. I think that's a great comparison. But did you know? Do you know how how Michael used Rambo to get the rating changed on this movie?
1: I did not. Please, I wouldn't.
0: Well, so yeah, you're. (laughs) So this came out. It was. It was very close to. I I believe it was First Blood Part Two. Uh, but they, the movie, they wanted to give it an X rating, Death Wish 3, and he fought censors. The there was some stuff removed that like we mentioned before, but they still wanted to give it an X rating. He was fighting for an R, and his reasoning he took to them is you gave Rainbow First Blood Part 2 an R rating, and that has 20 more kills than this one. <laughs> ah. How am going to. So he ended up getting the R. <laughs> because of that argument which so there, there, there's there there's they have more in common but th- no that's that is a fantastic comparison because yeah it, it was somebody who in both of those stories or they were they were characters started out it was just pushed pushed too far you know there obviously one is one you have John with the PTSD and things going on, and you had Paul Kersey with this like immense like immediate grief right. that he's dealing with, and just sort of and 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 and, and in some level like I one of those situations. They're both movies, but I think somebody could conceivably, I guess, think like try to put their headselves in the characters' heads and maybe believe some of what happens in them. Right, Some, like small shred believability, but yeah, by the later films, you know, the third Rambo, Death Wish, Death Wish three. That's- I don't think anybody's watching this and being like, oh yeah, like. My my war buddy I haven't seen in twenty years got killed. This, this you know this this is a good reason for me to kill an entire
1: neighborhood in the Bronx. <laughs> right. This guy's got a really bad haircut. He's dead, and uh, uh, the giggler he's goofy. So I'm gonna kill him. No, it's it's interesting now. Even just thinking about it. So we have Death Wish that was a book, and um, Rambo First Blood, which is a book. And spoiler for anyone that. Um, has not read the novel Rambo: First Blood. Rambo dies at the end, so that's a that's something interesting. That it I, and it kind of goes back to the way that I think of Paul Kersey's character, is that Brian Garfield never really envisioned anything else more happening than this one story that he had written. Similar to the way that the author of First Blood didn't think that. He, the story of John Rambo had already been told, and now I, I think a couple years ago a, a, there was still a Rambo movie coming out. This guy's still going, um, but what do you think is what do you think is the appeal for these Death Wish movies? That there's there's five of them and a remake out now. What what do you think is is this appeal?
0: Sure. Somebody with uh, much more uh, a, a bigger background in psychology would have a lot to say about about that. But it's something. So something that's interesting um, to to me is that these, these are kind of fantasy fulfillments. Uh, I mean, they're not kind of. They are fantasy action fantasy movies but i think the audience at least for the death wish sequels especially death wish 3 is very much reflected in the the character his audience he has in the movie you see these people in this community who are cheering him on you know they that you there's a there's a point where yeah he's he guns down a purse snatcher basically <laughs> yeah in the street and people cheer him on And that's what the audience was doing during these these scenes, and especially like Death Wish three would play it played very well in places like New York, where there was there was some very heavy crime. I'm sure. I'm sure that was something that, (laughs) as 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 morally questionable as it is, I'm sure there are people that were thinking it's like, oh, wouldn't it be great if somebody. Uh, if, you, if there was somebody that could t- take this, I mean, I guess that's the same appeal that you know, the, the Batman movies have now, nowadays on a much more cartoonish level. Right. Than Death it, it's kind of funny to think of that, but um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure there's a more basic psychological appeal uh, on how the normal non.
1: I, I mean, I know that the, uh, uh- a lot of it is just escapism. Um and for me what I what I really like is that of of the series um and I've only I haven't seen I've seen I saw Death Wish 5 once, but for 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 this episode I rewatched Death Wish 1 2 3 4 and um I rewatched a review on the remake just to see what I... Because uh, I, I only saw the remake once, and I, I thought it was pretty forgettable and kind of unnecessary that it just didn't really need to exist. But to me, my two favorites are the original from 1974 and Death Wish 3. But they're my favorites for very, very different reasons. I like the original because it is so grounded. It is so it's very gritty, and it is it's much more psychologically. You know, we kind of go through this, the torment. We're basically on a journey with this guy, and um, the way that he kind of just happens. You know, he's he's portrayed as a pacifist, but he he happens upon a gun from a from a business transaction, helping out an, an architect, you know, being an architect, he's out on a trip and, um, is introduced and he's given a gun as a present. And, um, it's very gritty. It's, you know, there are scenes that are uncomfortable, but it is, it's still pretty realistic. And then when I'm in the mood for something grounded and real, I'd, I'll turn into the first death wish. But if I'm looking for something that's just pure, Kind of, and I don't, I don't want to say mindless because that's not a phrase that I really like. But kind of like, not something that I really have to intellectually invest in as much, and just kind of, just have fun for an hour and a half. Death, you you can't go wrong with Death Wish three. I mean, this it because it's so over the top that, like I said, the the couple scenes that. Are a little kind of to me misplaced because they are just a little too graphic for a movie that is very cartoonish and at times like goofy, but like it's kind of it's kind of par for the course for like what eighties action movies were. It just so happens that I think part of the reason that people get such a kick out of Death Wish Three is because it's a it's it clearly i mean it's still charles bronson like he's still he's still the man he's still a badass but he's in his 60s it's kind of like it's kind of like the thrill that i get sometimes with these older clint eastwood movies where he's still kind of kicking ass as an old as you know you kind of wish that oh when i'm that age I, I hope i'm still kicking ass but um there's it's just a it's just so much fun but it it seems to be the one that has the biggest cult following. Death Wish Three.
0: It's it's definitely the big, uh, definitely the crowd pleaser of the of the series. It's not as grim as the early ones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is not. It doesn't have, uh, for lack of a better phrase, the 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 icky Michael Winter stuff.
1: Much of it, <laughs> yeah,
0: to, to as high a degree as the first one, the, the, his earlier movies do, and it is just a wild ride. It is very cartoonish. You, you have, yeah, it's he's like as you said, you have, you know, senior citizen Charles Bronson, <laughs> mail ordering a wide variety of weapons, including a rocket launcher and the world's largest handgun. that he's got setting up traps like kevin McAllister for bad guys he's got an entire like posse of old people there's there's right when the last the last 20 minutes the crazy bloodbath that that is there's a wonderful wonderful moment where he's like gunning starts like shooting people in the street. <laughs> and then he cuts away to all the old people, like in their apartments, going to their drawers and like pulling out guns. And, like, yeah, I forgot about that. Like, my goodness, it, I mean, but yeah, this is this is the a movie where yeah he shoots a guy, like he shoots, or you know at this point he just punches a guy out. But you know he's he he you know this kid like hiding behind a tree pumps his fist at him, and like you know Charles Bronson pumps his fist back, and it's just this. Such this, cartoonish reaction of just everybody on the streets that aren't the gang members are just so into watching this old man just like kick ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and his 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 poor uh, poor sidekick who only has the little uh zip gun.
1: Yeah. Um, and and that was the that was the husband of the of uh, the wife. Uh, the um the actress we had mentioned, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. The one,
1: yeah, I mean, the one that like they brought her to the hospital and like I remember rewatching that scene, going like, "All oh, right, she's okay." And then like thirty seconds later, the doctor's like, "No, she's dead." And I was like, "Wait, didn't you? Did, weren't we just like under the impression that she was just okay and she had some sort of like blood clot or something? It was,
0: it's just yeah, it, it, yeah, it was." A broken arm that
1: she died of. Right. That was, that oh, was, yeah. That was
0: complications from a broken arm. Complications I, from a broken I arm. i doctor, but I don't think that's a common. I don't think many people die of broken arms. No, I don't. No. <laughs> that doesn't seem right to me at all.
1: My father's a doctor. I'll ask him how many times that he's come across a, a broken arm that's, you know, I I do know blood clots are something serious but still it almost is it's like um this character is set up and then immediately is taken from us it's kind of like yeah and the characters that you think are going to die like the old um Jewish couple like no no nope, they're fine you know um this movie's just I like I just get a kick out of it and um yeah no it it's um yeah, but it's got a huge cult following. Like, people that they're, like, don't even have even seen the, the original Death Wish. Like, they're like, yeah, like, somebody show me Death Wish Street. Just because it's one of those movies that you're just kind of like, I kind of have to see this to believe it. Are people like the talk about this movie that I've heard? Like, is it really that violent? Is the body count really that high? It, like, really Charles Bronson 64 years old like mowing down like a g- gang members like is that what I'm going to get and like it's absolutely it 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 is um but um we should start wrapping things up but I did want to ask you a question here cuz this is something that is very curious to me is the music for Death Wish 3 do you have any knowledge of the background here? Because I know it's credited to Jimmy Page, but it's I also read that Jimmy Page had bas- like nothing to do. I mean, I know that he did the music for Death Wish 2, which I really enjoyed. And um, it's just very interesting, the music of Death Wish. Death Wish, 1974, we have Herbie Hancock that like delivers a great, very like 70s, almost jazz kind of, Feel to it, and then Death Wish Two, kind of has like Jimmy Page, who's most known for being a guitar player, but also like just having a blast on these 80s synthesizers uh, for this for the score for Death Wish Two. But Death Wish Three, I guess, is credited to Mike Moran as a as a as an arranger. Do you know? Do you have any um, background? You can. Well, yeah, no. so there, there...
0: Deathwish wish death death wish 2 had been um they uh michael winter was editing the uh editing death wish 2 at his house and it happens that jimmy page was his neighbor which is crazy i mean you must you have to live in a very affluent section of london to just have a cat you know Jimmy Page beer, not like neighbor in the eighties and right. by, <laughs> but so he showed him some early footage. It's like, hey, you know, we need somebody to do some score. So Jimmy Page ended up doing the mu- music for Death Wish two, and it's very recognizable and it's, it's very divisive. People either love or hate the soundtrack. I I've heard people like uh, go either way.
1: I like the soundtrack. Of Death I Wish I think it's great. Yeah, like he's got, is he's it date is it dated? Yeah, but like if if I if I was a like alive in 1982 and saw like this, like this is like, it's very true to the time. Like I think that her um, is it her, yeah, Herbie Hancock did Death Wish, mm-hmm.
0: and. guitar, very moody, and he... Mike, Mike Moran was a guy who was just working with, working with Ken at the time, but they, Jimmy Page did not record any new music for Death Wish 3, but they had some leftover music from Death Wish 2, some little bits, and bits that they could reuse, and so Jimmy Page is of course much better known they couldn't get it they, they didn't get a a big star star name to do the music so they reused jimmy page's music from from two and leftover parts and you you when you hear it it you'll recognize it because it's the very clearly the same music pretty much from death wish two. you hear it when the scene where when the giggler gets shot is probably the most where it's used most heavily in death wish three um for those kind of moody, like, stalking moments when Curzio's doing that. <laughs> right. And all the rest of it, there's so much, like, goofy musical cues. There's some, like, kind of, like, light, jazzy type of stuff. There's some, like, kind of silly music that plays whenever, like, Curzio's hanging out or, like, having dinner with his, like, neighbors. And, like, kind of silly music that plays when he's showing off his traps, which is, which always makes me smile. And yeah. that, was, that was all from Moran. So Moran was the only person who composed new music for Death Wish 3.
1: And there's also like a like an electric guitar, like bang, that kind of. Yeah, that's some page. yeah, some page. yeah. Um, so, um, any random trivia you want to throw at us about a uh, Death Wish three before we wrap it up?
0: Gosh, let me think for a second. Um, I I really don't I don't think so, anything right offhand, but. Other than to say that it is, I can see why I can understand why it is the kind of the, yeah, I guess the cult favorite of the bunch, it's, and why it's a lot of people's favorite canon movie, because it it, it it goes, it takes everything that's kind of nutty about the uh, Death Wish, the whole concept of Death Wish, and Charles, especially the sequels of old old man Charles Bronson. picking <laughs> Right. And dials them up and like leans into that as hard as he can, and again, the the last twenty minutes are just insane. Right. Some of the fun you're gonna have in any any '80s action movie because they're just so over the top. Right. Um, but yeah, so Canon did Death Wish four after this, which I personally enjoy. I love anything with John P. Ryan. I think he's a great villain in that, and um it also features another great like close range um rocket launcher kill on, on, on,
1: on it on does Star- I for- yeah. Star- yeah um there, that,
0: that was a canon trademark i think because they use that in at least four different movies like a villain gets taken out at the end of the movie with a close-range rocket launcher blast which is i think an impressive like sort of visual trademark to to call you <laughs>
1: Right. It it kind of reminds me of the old like grainy black and white photos of the guy big fat guy with goggles that takes like the cannonball to his his stomach. It's kind of like that ex- yeah. except you get to see what happens like if like this cannon shot this guy up into into the uh the stratosphere. It's 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 impressive. Yeah. Um Yeah,
0: you don't want to watch any of these any of these scenes in slow motion because it just be to a lot of very like obvious dummy parts.
1: Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, thank you so much for joining me here to talk about Death Wish 3. And, um, again, I'm going to include the link. Anyone that has an interest in canon films, please show Austin some love on Twitter and on, by, really show him some love by buying his book. And, and, um, uh, hopefully he'll let us know when the, um, Volume 2 is coming out, and uh, we would love to have you again on the show. I I just happened to be looking over at my, my movie collection, and I realized that one of the movies uh, eventually on the show that we're going to cover, um, I would love to have you on to talk about, is one of my personal favorite canon movies, and it's... Not a Rambo movie, but it's a Stallone movie. It's one of my favorite Stallone movies. Do you have do you a guess which movie I'm talking about? Uh,
0: well, uh, there, there, there are two. I'm hoping you're gonna say Over the Top, but I'm guessing you're gonna say Cobra.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking. I think I. Hello. I
0: think I lost you.
1: Hello. Yeah, so I wasn't talking about over the top. I was uh, referring to uh, to Cobra, but uh, we, maybe we could do a, a double feature of St- Cobra Stallone. I mean, Canon Stallone. That would be fun.
0: Yeah, well, there's uh, some very interesting, uh, very interesting story when uh, about how how Cannon wound up with their with their names on on, on, on Cobra, uh, with at least Golden Globus's names on it. All, all of their Stallone stories are
1: fascinating. Oh, I would have met. So let's we'll save those stories for the for the Cobra episode because I, I I've, I've heard my stories and I have my theories about the director um, <laughs> so um, but uh, tell us tell us where where we can find you on Twitter. I am
0: on Twitter at Canon Film Guide. Um, it's all one word and yeah that's i i mainly i just share a lot of stuff this these books my books on the canon are very long but still there's not even remotely enough room to fit all of the stuff i have and the stuff i continue to find even after they've been published so i i throw it all up on on social media so it's <laughs> if you want to think of it as a bonus features or even if you're just a just a canon fan want to look at some cool stuff like you know, cut scripts, early advertisements, international posters and artwork, just all kinds of behind the scenes things. I, I love to throw that stuff up online and yeah, Canon questions. If anybody wants to know anything about any canon movie, if I can answer the question just I'm happy to just shoot it to me on
1: there. That's uh that's so cool because yeah, um going back and looking at these canon movies. They they're just a blast, and um, I can't thank you enough so, for for helping me talk not only about uh, Death Wish three, but I'm gonna title this just like s- some canon, like a brief brief uh, discussion of canon in general. And um, we'd love to have you back on the show uh, again. One of my favorites, maybe not yours, but I I I, I, I love Cobra. Um, oh, and... I mean, I, I I
0: absolutely I adore I adore. Cobra. Still proven, shown me the best way to eat a pizza is with, with scissors. Oh, right. <laughs> um, yeah, no, Cobra, Cobra is an amazing movie. So, um,
1: amazing. so we're gonna definitely have to have you on again. And um, thank you so much, Austin, for joining me. And um, the links for Austin's Twitter are going to be in the uh, description for this episode, as well as Amazon link to the first volume of his History of Canon and stay tuned to his Twitter feed and he'll gonna let us all know once volume 2 is released. Um thank you again for joining me oh, here. Thank you so much for
0: having me. This has been
1: this has been a lot of fun. Well, that I mean that's the whole point of our show here at the cold Film Companion is um we like to talk about movies that, you know, a lot of other podcasts don't really talk about and uh we um we are available on ACAST, iHeartRadio, Newsly, Newsly.me. Uh use our promo code C U L T F1LM for a free free month of their premium service. We are also available on Google Podcast and soon to be on Spotify and YouTube at some point. We are also a member of the Blind Knowledge Collective for Austin Trunick. My name is Chris. Thank you again for joining us through another deep dive into a cult film classic Death Wish 3 with the one the only Charles Bronson directed by Michael Winner um worth a rewatch if you haven't seen it in a while good night all